From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. More people died in Colorado in 2020 than in an average year. But COVID-19 isn't the only reason. I don't believe we've seen anything to this magnitude in essentially in the last century that would compare. We'll explore how the pandemic is having an effect beyond the virus. Then, Eric Rashke's new novel, based in Colorado, is fiction. But the main characters are modeled on himself and his son, who's autistic. Jace taught Marshall how to survive outside in a huge snowstorm. Yes. What's something I've taught you? To always, um, to always make breakfast, probably. Make breakfast by yourself, yeah. You can get out of bed and get yourself ready for school all by yourself now, can't you? They both talk about how their relationship inspired the story. Support staying informed and help your fellow Coloradans at the same time. Right now, when you become a new member or add to your monthly giving, you'll provide a week's worth of groceries to a Colorado family. Thanks to a generous partnership with the Singer Family Foundation and five food banks across our state. Stay informed, stay connected. You make it possible at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. COVID-19 hit Colorado hard in 2020. That includes in the state's nursing homes. They saw many outbreaks and deaths, and it appears to have contributed to a hidden toll the coronavirus has taken on some Colorado seniors, starvation. I'm joined by Jayla Sanchez-Warren with the Denver Regional Council of Governments. She leads its agency on aging. Hi, Jayla. Hi, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Also with us, Dr. Gregory Gum, a geriatrician and chief medical officer for Vivage Senior Living. It operates about 40 long-term care and assisted living facilities in Colorado. Hi, Dr. Gum. Good morning. And CPR health reporter John Daly, who's also on our COVID-19 reporting team. Hi, John. Hi, Avery. So first, let's talk about this hidden toll. John, you reviewed the state's data about people who died during 2020. What did you find? Well, one thing that really stood out in 2020, nearly 350 seniors, most of them in nursing homes, essentially stopped eating. They died of what's clinically termed nutritional deficiencies on state death certificates. CPR News analyzed state data and found that number went up by more than 100 deaths. That's more than 40 percent. That's compared to the average number of those deaths over the three years before. The second largest category who died of this died at home. COVID-19 has now officially claimed more than 5,500 lives in Colorado. What do we know about those deaths? Well, the vast majority of those deaths were among people older than 70, although they represent a small share of the state's population. Overall, the number of deaths of all causes was up by more than 8,000 last year. That's, again, compared to the average over the previous three years. Here's what Dr. Kyle Leggett, a family medicine physician in Lone Tree, told me. Early on in the pandemic, we were calling this COVID collateral damage. Yeah, COVID collateral damage. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, these uh, additional deaths uh, uh, did result in a, a double-digit percentage increase in several categories. 
uh, drug overdoses, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and liver diseases, and unspecified infections and parasitic diseases. So 2020, we saw a lot of people die from COVID-19, but we also saw a lot more people than we'd expect die from other things as well. We've seen national coverage of this using the term excess deaths. So what's the thinking behind these numbers? You know, it really appears to be a complex mix of things, but a few things seem clear. One is that elderly Coloradans especially really struggled through the pandemic and COVID-19 claimed a lot of lives, but a lot of people also struggled with all the mental health impacts, which appears to have led to additional deaths. Then one other thing is that people seem to have delayed health care or perhaps been afraid to seek it due to fears of catching the virus. We're going to get into those mental health effects in a moment. Dr. Gregory Gum, I want to bring you in here. What do you think of these numbers? Were you surprised? No. Uh, quite frankly, there's so many things going on. There are three main reasons I think that malnutrition is associated with all of this. Uh, number one, there's extreme loneliness. Uh, we went months at a time without providers, physicians, even being able to get into facilities to see patients. And it's been almost a year since families have been able to easily get in to see loved ones. Uh, that lonely, loneliness and depression certainly um, added to lack of interest in eating. Second, I think 20, there's a large percentage, and I don't know exactly what it is, of folks with COVID that lose their sense of smell and taste. And if the food just doesn't smell good, doesn't taste good, you just don't eat it. Um, and then finally, COVID, we, we focus on the pulmonary problems, but there's also a systemic inflammatory component that leads to inflammation of the intestines so they don't absorb nutrients well. Um, so there, in, even the people that survive COVID, we see a lot of weight loss for about two to three months. And then that tends to come back after about three months is what we're seeing now. But we're just figuring this out as we go. So there are a lot of contributing factors here. We know yes. we know that a lot of younger folks might overeat to treat their depression or to cope with their depression, but that's not what happens for older folks necessarily, right? Not usually, um, and especially because not only do they not have visitors, but the regulatory structure early on and really for a long time and now still is to isolate people, keep them apart, no socialization, keep them in their rooms. Um, and you just stare at the walls, stare at the TV, whatever. Eventually, you just lose interest in everything around you. John, I understand you might have some insight into this from when your father died a few years back before the pandemic. Yeah, that's right. My dad died in 2017. He was uh, 82. He'd been struggling with Alzheimer's and was in a nursing home in Denver for several years. And after a good friend of his was moved into a different unit, he went into a, a, a real funk, and by that point, uh, like Dr. Gom just described, he lost interest in, in most things, lost interest in food, and stopped eating altogether, and, and he passed away about 10 days later. I'm sorry, John. And Greg, you also have some insight into what seniors in Colorado have been dealing with through your mother? Yes. Um, my mother has severe dementia as well, has been living in uh, a dementia facility for about five years uh, she is apparently from sturdier stock where three quarters of the people at her dementia unit got COVID. She avoided it, um, hasn't stopped eating. She's doing pretty well. 
I'm glad to hear that she's doing all right. Let's bring in Jayla Sanchez-Warren of the Denver Regional Council of Governments to talk about perhaps the key underlying factor, the mental health impacts older Coloradans are experiencing during the pandemic. Jayla, you work with this older population every day. What are you seeing and hearing? Yeah, you know, the Area Agency on Aging does. We we not only serve older adults, but we fund 40 different local community service providers. You know, places like Volunteers of America, the Alzheimer's Association, uh, Seniors Resource Center, Senior Hub, those kinds of organizations across the city. Um, and we have noticed, uh, noticed really early on, you know, people starting to... Um, struggle with the isolation. Our older adults did exactly what they were told to do. For the most part, they stayed home, they stayed safe um, uh, to protect themselves. But I think they spent a lot of time, you know, by themselves watching TV. um, And we started to see something that we call failure to thrive. Really, um, depression, uh, we think linked to the isolation and increase in dementia. Our folks with dementia that are in the community seem to be doing worse. We were doing reassurance calls. So um, I, I normally pay uh, providers to like take folks to the grocery store or take them to doctor's appointments or to do in-home services. With COVID, we couldn't do that. So we had to find different ways to stay connected to the people that we serve. And so I, I um, reimbursed them for reassurance calls, a way to stay connected. And over time, we could tell that there were changes happening. And we were worried about not only their cognitive health, and um, but also their physical health, because we knew they weren't getting the activity or, um, in, in many cases, the nutrition um, that they needed. And we weren't sure how they were taking their medications. And so that's always something that you worry about as well. Uh, and then and then we set up some protocols for those who are very concerned about get that PPE gear on and go up and, and out and do a home visit to see what's going on. John, you recently reported a story. It's up on CPR.org. You shared the story that, of an older gentleman that you talked with. He's really struggling. Yeah, that was a story that uh, Jayla told me. Maybe you can uh, carry on uh, with that, Jayla. Yeah, he he was an older adult that lived in Adams County, and uh, he called because he was struggling getting uh, a vaccination. And you know that can be pretty complicated, uh, if especially if you're not connected. Uh, finding out how to get uh, you know uh, a vaccination, it can be challenging. This was earlier in the vaccinations where people weren't uh, on those phone lines as much as they are now. And as we were talking, he was just talking about how lonely and isolated he was. He he said things like, you know, I don't know what the point of my life is. I don't know why I'm still here. Um, and and when you hear those kinds of things, uh, you, you know, you start understanding that there might be some depression. There's definitely some loneliness and isolation. Uh, I found out he's called back a couple of times to our staff, and I think just to talk. And so we put him on. Uh, he did get his vaccination. That's the good news. And um, we connected him uh, to someone who, who will do reassurance calls. So I, I think that uh, hopefully we're helping him. But it is, you know, I also talked to another man in Byers who hadn't been out of his house since, since March. And that's, you know, that's crazy. He didn't want to get on uh, a video because he says he has not had a haircut since March. 
So folks are nervous about going out uh, and they're staying in, but there are, are consequences to that as well. Yeah, these are lonely situations. Greg, one challenge for nursing homes and long-term care facilities and other services for seniors is staffing, right? Oh, definitely. Uh, And that was worse early in the pandemic when we had probably 25 to 30% of staff that got so scared of hearing about COVID in nursing homes and killing people, we we lost a quarter to a third of staff that just walked out. Um, And then combination of things, unemployment, stimulus checks, a lot of break even, why go back to work um, or find work somewhere else. So that's continued to be a problem. Uh, The only bright side of that problem is that enough people either moved out or died that they were in, and it's harder to get people back into nursing homes now because of all the regulatory hurdles uh, that there are fewer patients to take care of. Jayla, are you hearing the same thing from staff that it's been tough on them emotionally? I think it's been tough on everybody emotionally, certainly. Um, Our staff has, we are booming with calls and need. Uh, One thing that happened that we weren't anticipating is that a lot of our community providers, just like what Dr. Gum was talking about, um, they they had to lay off people. Um, So, uh, you know, we had providers, community providers that were doing transportation and in-home services and adult day and congregate meals, and they couldn't do those things anymore. So they laid off a whole lot of people. Many of those people have moved out of the region um, because it's expensive to live uh, in the metropolitan area and they couldn't afford to do it. Others um, are being pulled away from the healthcare system. So, uh, you know, hospitals are hiring a lot of people right now. And uh, so the competition is is uh, great for a lot of these uh, local service providers and nonprofits. Uh, I do think, though, the stress is on staff. It feels like I was talking to one of my staff yesterday, you know, like this never ending tunnel of need. Um, um, We can't stay on top of the calls. Um, There's so much need out there. You know, right now, one of our biggest challenges is getting people to vaccinate vaccines uh, for those who can't drive. And there's just not enough resource out there to get this done um, as far as transportation. So it's it's a challenge. Yeah, John, let's talk about another factor that you mentioned earlier that some people are not seeking or they're delaying care. Is that a contributor to those excess deaths in 2020? Well, doctors I spoke with say definitely it's hard to quantify, though. A a CDC report found roughly four in 10 U.S. adults reported avoiding medical care, including urgent or emergency care, because of concerns related to COVID-19. The agency cited another study that found states with large numbers of COVID-19 associated deaths also saw large proportional increases in deaths from other underlying causes. This is what we're seeing in Colorado. That included diabetes and cardiovascular disease. That uh, family practice doc I mentioned earlier, Kyle Leggett, he says he's seen the fear and hesitation in older patients at his Lone Tree practice. Especially some of my very cautious elderly patients who just don't want to come into the office, despite all of the appropriate kind of precautions that, you know, our office and offices across the state are taking. Um, So we do telehealth visits. And he says telehealth often works well, but it's no replacement for seeing a patient in person. 
the key point here is that if you delay care, a health condition might get worse or doctors might not catch something until it's too late. Well, thank you, John. And thank you, Jayla and Gregory. You bet. Thank you. Jayla Sanchez-Warren is with the Denver Regional Council of Governments. She leads its agency on aging. Dr. Gregory Gom is a geriatrician and chief medical officer for Vivage Senior Living. John Daly is CPR's health reporter on our COVID-19 reporting team. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. High school sports look a little different during a pandemic. Swim meets happen without all the competitors in the pool. Basketball players wear masks on the court. And COVID-19 grounds an entire wrestling team. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine looks at how school districts are striking the balance between keeping schools safe and giving teenagers a positive physical and mental outlet. Basketball is a huge part of Shea Youssef's life. This past year, the senior at Denver's North High School thought about it constantly. And it's been a hard year for Shea. I already lost my grandma, my two aunties to COVID. When he found out state health officials gave the thumbs up to a winter sports season, he was thrilled, but also worried about what that would mean for his parents. His mother already got COVID once. His dad needs a kidney replacement. So... Shay went to live with his sister. It's a decision I made to protect my mom and dad. That's how badly Shay wanted to play. He says his team is like a family. If there wasn't a season, like, it would break me down. He doesn't mind that he has to play in a mask. He says it's just taught him to manage his breathing. State health officials set a baseline for safety protocols. But each school district had the option of making them more restrictive. Over at the swimming pool, a meet is going on. They're on mute. These are our parents watching from a document camera. Athletic director Kevin Benji shows parents watching the competition on a Google Meet screen. No in-person spectators allowed. There aren't competitors in the lanes either. They're in the same race, several miles away at their school's own pools. Racers' times are compared to declare a winner. Junior Kate Adams. I think the adrenaline is a lot less, so you swim a lot slower. She says it doesn't matter. She's just happy to be back with her team. When I was in quarantine and before the season and just like online school, I felt really down, not productive at all. But then I get to come to swim and it just like boosts my mood. Increased rates of anxiety and depression in young athletes was one of the motivating factors to get kids back into school sports. Dr. Aaron Provence of Children's Hospital Colorado is an advisor to CHASA, which oversees high school sports. We know that a lot of these athletes, this is their identity. And when you take that away from them, it's like taking their identity away from them. His colleague, Dr. Julie Wilson, said young people don't seem to be getting as many severe COVID-19 cases or hospitalizations, but there's still a risk. There's a very real possibility they may catch this, unfortunately, in the sports setting. Which means others in the school could get infected, too. An outbreak on the Eagle Crest High School wrestling team in the Cherry Creek School District has led to 35 positive cases at the school. The local health department said that 63 percent of wrestlers getting COVID is extraordinarily high. That's rattled some teachers. We've had more cases at the high school level in the past four weeks than we have in the entire 11-week period this fall. Eagle Crest High teacher Sandy Mikesell told the school board she wants wrestlers to wear masks and have COVID tests. 
The district says it's following state mask guidance, which exempts wrestlers. But the Tri-County Health Department, which oversees the district, had its own recommendations. Masks, remote learning for wrestlers, and even postponing the season. Meantime, Aurora Public Schools has a safety measure few districts do. It's actually been huge. That's Athletic Director Casey Powell speaking about the COVID testing program for student-athletes. It's free through the district's contract with COVID Check Colorado, but hiring folks to administer the every-other-week test will cost the district $280,000. Powell says it's worth it. More than 1,000 tests so far found three positive cases. Students were asymptomatic in all cases. And we were able to quarantine them in a way that it did not stop practice, it did not stop our teams, and those kids are now going to the return-to-play protocols. Return-to-play protocols are important for players who've tested positive. Dr. Provence says coaches and trainers need to watch for exercise intolerance when athletes return. They could have palpitations or feeling like their heart is racing. They may have a near-fainting episode. Those would all be strong indications that uh, they may have myocarditis and need further workup done. That's a scoring opportunity. North High School's Levi Arguello, who wrestles in a mask, says he'll do everything he can to keep safe. The senior says he stays at home a lot and avoids crowds. Arguello is nothing short of ecstatic to be back wrestling. I just love every fact about it, just like the sweat, the how tired you are, the challenging yourself, everything about it is just awesome. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. To the Mountain is a survival story. In Eric Rashke's latest novel, a father and son find themselves on a lonely peak battling avalanches, cold, and coyotes. They're fighting to stay alive, to find each other, and to find themselves. The story is set in southern Colorado. Rashke grew up in the state. The Sangre de Cristos near his aunt's home in Durango made a particular impression on him and on this story. Eric, welcome. Thank you. Even before your main characters, Marshall and Jace, wind up physically isolated in the wilderness, they're each experiencing intense loneliness. Marshall lives in a group home where he's bullied by the other kids and even some of the staff. Introduce us to Marshall. Who is he? Yeah, well, Marshall is... I couldn't have written Marshall without my my son, um, who is autistic. I guess as a writer, you know, you sort of begin with what you know best, And the last decade has been a lot of just trying to get him on his feet and into the world and independent. And it's really hard for him, too. So there's just a lot of emotions the last 10 years with him. And um, it it seems like it would be kind of a, you know, (laughs) to channel that into a character and to make that a story. Um, But I also I really just didn't want to write. Uh, a memoir, a father-son memoir. Um, I thought there's there's enough of those out there. And a lot of the autism parent stories just don't really appeal to me. There's, there's just very few that I actually really connect with. And um, so I really I really just decided I wanted to I wanted to write more of a universal uh, story of dis- disability and the struggle between a parent and a, and a child. But basically it came down to Isaac and Abraham. And the father and son connection between them and the faith that you have. And I thought that was just a nice way. The faith that a parent has in their child and the, the faith that a child has in their parent. So that's where I was. 
So in some ways, there's this almost biblical story of this father, Jace, learning to have faith. In this case, faith in his son's own ability to survive. At the beginning of the story, Jace is already in the wilderness leading a separate rescue mission for a climber that fell. He learns his son has gone missing nearby. He immediately sets out to find Marshall. Without giving too much of the story away, they both climb the peak of this mountain in southern Colorado separately in a huge snowstorm. It threatens both of their lives. What is it about Marshall's survival story in particular that drew you in and kept you writing? Well, so I sort of used a lot of that, the survival and the need to be away from the institution and being out in nature. And his father, who is on search and rescue, has taught him how to actually survive in nature. So when he is, when he goes, when he is stuck out in the middle of nature and he has to survive, his, uh, he brings in these things. So he does understand how to survive. He does remember certain techniques, but then he also has this impetus of like, I don't want to be back in the institution. I want to be out in nature away from people. Right. Marshall is alone as he climbs this mountain. And like you're saying, he navigates brutal survival situations because his dad taught him wilderness first aid and how to avoid hypothermia. We find out he's a skilled outdoorsman, but he also gets himself into some of the sticky spots. And I'm thinking of the scene where he sees a sick coyote and Marshall goes out onto a frozen lake to taunt this coyote. And he's driven by what you describe as two beasts who live inside of Marshall, the panic and the fury. Tell me more about the panic and the fury. Yeah, that's a direct thing from my my son. Like when you're when you have the inability to communicate like you want to, it bubbles up. So like, for example, he, my son had this doll that he would carry around all the time. And, and and if he ever lost the doll or he dropped it somewhere and he couldn't find it, he would go into a panic, right? And then and that panic would just sort of build up and build up, but he couldn't express himself. He couldn't be like, I lost my doll. It's over here. Like a lot of kids will cry and he'll get sort of get it through the tears, but he couldn't do that. So it just swells and builds and builds and builds. And then and then when you try and calm him down, that was sort of the point where it switches to the fury. You you know, kids don't like to necessarily autistic kids that they're they get over they're they're very sensitive. So you touch them and you try and hold them like you would normal a normal child and hug them and calm them down, it only makes things worse. But then also like if you raise your voice, you know, all these things that sort of prickles, like it's little pokes on their brain, you know, and um and it just becomes too much and that turns that panic becomes anger. And I mean, we, we spent years working on it with it, but I, that's what I used to sort of see. There's these two sides. There's the first is the panic and then there's the fury. And so with Marshall, I tried to have this two sort of beasts living within him that he can't control, but he's aware of them. And my son, that was the thing. Like he can't really control them, but he's aware of them. And now when they come up, he can sort of, he knows sort of how to separate himself from what's making them grow. And I remember the day that we actually, he, he, he felt it coming up and he said, I'm going to go sit in another room. And like, you know, there's tears in my eyes because I was like, he's it's self-awareness and you're taking control of yourself. You're taking control of your brain and the way you think and the way you feel and stuff. So... That's huge. And is that control part of why it was important to you to show Marshall both as this very skilled outdoorsman who knows how to keep himself alive out there? He knows what to do when he falls through a frozen lake to survive. But at the same time, he has to contend with panic and fury. I'm curious about what you were thinking about when you decided to juxtapose those things. 
yeah, I guess I'm sort of repeating myself, but once again, it's sort of my son. Like, he's really good at certain things. Like, he's really smart and really perceptive, and he picks up on things, and he he learns things that he wants to learn. Like, he, he makes his music now, and he picks it up because it's something he's really interested in. But he still can't tie his shoes. He still puts his shoes on the wrong feet, you know? He still puts his ear pods in the wrong ears and for class. He's, he's always making these very simple mistakes. And that there's a part in the book where he's walking up the hill with rocks in his arms. And he's like, I'm tired. I can't walk anymore. And then his doll says to him, put the rocks down. That literally happened every time we went hiking. It wasn't just like one that happened all the time. He'd come up and he'd be carrying a big thing of, you know, sticks. And he would be like, I'm tired. I'm like, because you're carrying you know, 10 sticks in your arm. And he's like, yeah, but I don't want to put them down. And, you know, put them down. No. And then that's when you get into this fight. And you're like, I'm fighting with his child about he's tired, but he doesn't want to put down, a you know, an armful of rocks. And so it was this, there's this thing with that I notice as a father is it's really, it's fascinating is that he's really good with certain things. And then there's these other things that just, you have no idea where they're coming from and they make no sense. And you're just like, whoa. And, and, um, so in his mind, it does, you know, in his mind, it totally is. For me, it doesn't. And uh, so I wanted to sort of put that in the book, that that sort of how there's this, he knows how to survive and he knows how to, you know, be in the woods and, and do all this stuff. But then on the other hand, he just, he's going to the top of the mountain. And he doesn't need to go, you know, so not to spoil it, but, you know, there, he makes these choices that are bad choices, but he also makes really smart choices which is just in tune with my experience with my son. So, Do you and your son share the outdoors the same way Marshall and Jace do? Yeah, we do. I mean, we go hiking all the time because hiking is actually the, the one thing that um, I can do with him that is good exercise. And I can really get him just to sort of go all day long. And I want him to be healthy and fit and strong. I'm glad y'all share that. So I sent you some questions for your son. For privacy, we're not going to use his name. You asked him my questions and recorded that conversation. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Jace taught Marshall how to survive outside on a mountain in a huge snowstorm. Yes. What's something your dad has taught you? I do ride my bike. How to ride your bike? Okay. That's it? That's all? Yeah. Anything I've taught you? To always, um, to always make breakfast, probably. Make breakfast by yourself, yeah. You can get out of bed and get yourself ready for school all by yourself now, can't you? What is something you've taught your dad? The commands on the keyboard. What would you say your son has taught you? Oh, wow. Um, one of the things that I really love about him is that he's really happy. And I got really, really lucky that he's just a super happy kid. And he gets up in the morning and he's super happy and, and he goes to school and he doesn't give up and, and he knows he's aware of all the stuff that happens to him, but he's just happy. And I'm grumpy and cynical and frustrated, you know? (laughs) And then I'm like, what, what right do I have to be like that when he's not frustrated about him? Well, he is, but he's, he's happy, you know, and he's, he's encouraging and he's, you know, he's like, come on, dad, you know, like, and he's forgiving and patient and stuff, you know? So that's what I've learned from him, just sort of how to like, 
in, if he's happy, then I should sort of be happier about it, you know? Yeah. In your novel, The Father, Jace faces situations where there are seemingly no right answers. You've also had to make very tough decisions. Last fall, you and your son moved from Amsterdam to New Jersey so that he could go to a school that's better for him. Your wife and your other two kids are still in the Netherlands, and you're only able to see them for days at a time. You want your son to be able to live mostly independently when he's an adult. So tell me more about that decision to move across the world for your son's education. Um, it was just sort of those things where I made these decisions where I'm like, look, one of the things is, like I said, if I decided as a parent, look, I just he, his future is, is set for him. He's going to be in a group home or he's going to live with me. Then it would be so much easier. But there is a there is a percentage of parents and say, like, look, I want my child to be semi-independent. I want them to have a quality of life that they choose and that they they can live on their own. And they're not that if the whole world collapses around them, they can still stand. They can still survive. And I think as a parent, when you make that choice for your child, um, you run into so many hurdles, just constant roadblocks of like, can he be educated and how far can you educate him? And what kind of job can he have? And what, you know, so I really just felt like, look, you know, I want him to be semi-independent and I want him not to have to depend on his brothers or on me or, you know, he probably will to some capacity for the rest of his life but it will be minor. And so we moved out there to New Jersey and, um, and yeah, it was just, it was me and him, which I think was good in a way because I was really able just to stay on top of him. And we get up in the morning and I, now he, we're at a point now, which is a lot of work, but he gets up in the morning and he makes himself breakfast and he gets dressed and he takes a shower and he does all these things on his own. And then this existential weight is a father it's lifted off of me a little bit because I'm like, okay, we're getting there. We're moving forward. And like I said, he's getting an education. So, so yeah, so the next steps, I mean, he stays at the school until he's 21 and he works with kids in the school that are also older too. They're his mentors. They, you know, they learn how to fold clothes. They learn how to do their laundry, but they also learn, you know, academic stuff too. So it's yeah, fingers crossed. There, there are these people who are successful and, and they make the world a better place and they connect. And all those people, we just need more of that connection with each other. You and your son actually talked a little bit about his new school. What do you like yeah. about your new school? Um, there are a lot of teachers and they're nice to me. They're nice to you, yeah. They're really nice to you. What else do you like? Um... I have also really n- nice f- friends. You're making lots of friends, huh? Now, what's something you've learned at Celebrate the Children this year? What's something you've learned in school this year? About James M- Madison. James Madison, yeah. And why do you like James Madison? What's your favorite musical right now? Hamilton. Eric, earlier you mentioned a doll that your son played with. She makes an appearance as one of the most intriguing characters in this book. She's a Playmobil doll who talks with Marshall. She keeps him company, she encourages him, she scolds him, and motivates him and gives him advice. She's actually based on a Playmobil doll your son played with for years named Woody. I know you don't play with Woody that much anymore. What is Woody like? She is a good um, girl. And she says, 
And she says, listen to me. And do you listen to her? Yeah. Eric, who is Wadi to you? Um, well, Wadi represented an outlet for him to communicate. He can't communicate, you know, in person. Wadi sort of, I would hear him often having conversations that we had had or that questions people had asked him earlier with Wadi later on. So someone would ask him a question like, what's your favorite food? And then he would just sort of sit there and freeze. And, and you know, he, in his mind, there's all these things, what's your favorite food? And he's probably thinking a billion different things. And it comes out, he's like, uh, you know. And then later, I think you would use what he to sort of rehearse the, the answer to the question. And then he would also, he had a lot of thoughts going through his head that he would often go up to people and he says these very strange things. You know, like, you know, this, the, the snow is green. What do you think about that? And people are like, what do you mean the snow is green? And I would know that the snow is green because people had just thrown out their Christmas trees and there would be, you know, needles all over and he would see it. But he was referencing that and nobody had any idea what he was talking about. So then he would go back with Woody and sort of rehearse that sort of conversation again and sort of break it apart so that he could actually translate it for, you know, sort of a, you know, an, what do you say, a neurotypical audience. Why did you include Wadi, under the name Susie, into the mountain? Yeah, because, I, like I said, I couldn't have written it without him. And I couldn't have modeled this character without him. And that doll was a part of his life for, you know, five, six years. And, and now he still has imaginary friends. But Wadi and then Susie is such an integral part of who he was and how he thinks and the way his brain works, that to sort of leave it out would feel almost disingenuous, you know, in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Another coping skill of Marshall's is he has a song that he sings that helps him focus. It's a K-pop song from 2012. It was wildly popular, Gangnam Style. That skill is something else that Marshall and your son have in common. Is there a song that helps you focus? Yeah. What is it? It's Cry Me a River. Yeah, who's up by? To Justin Timberlake. And what else do you like to do to focus? Beatbox. So you wrote this character so closely based on your son. When you read him the story, were you nervous about what he would think or feel about that? Yes, I was absolutely nervous because, because yeah, and it's so close to him and it's who he is. I know that your son has told you after you read him the story that he does like the book. So what is it like now for the two of you to have this story out in the world that really is about y'all's relationship in a lot of ways? One of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to have him with me as much as possible because um, I'm, I'm a fiction writer. I'm not an autism expert. I'm just his parent. I think any disability or anything, any, anything people have that need to speak, it, it should come from the personal experience. And and I learn the most about how he thinks from people like Temple Grandin and, and those kind of books that are written by people who have autism, who write about what it's like to have autism, that experience. And um, so I I was like, okay, you know what, he's 14. This is This is good for him to sort of practice speaking and connecting with people and not have me do it, you know? I can be the writer, I can be the fiction 
the you know and the novelist and he can be the expert on it um and uh, it's been nice i mean i we're just slowly starting to get into it now but the experiences we've had have been really wonderful and he really loves it you know he's, he's super happy to do it and he's you know it's it's funny too because he he is more um charming than me he's a he smiles a lot and he he agrees with people and and uh so i i hope it i hope it continues to work out that way that we can both sort of be a buddy team on this at least for this book now before we go i've got to ask why did you set to the mountain in the colorado outdoors <laughs> that's really funny um I grew up in Colorado and I love Colorado. There's nowhere else in the world that makes me happier thinking of like climbing on a mountain in Colorado. Thank you, Eric. And thanks to your son also for sharing your experiences and the story. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Eric Rashke's novel To the Mountain is out now. When we come back, national recognition for a Colorado Springs artist. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's time to turn the page with Colorado Matters. Read a book with us, then meet the author. This time, a novel about pets. Boulder author R.L. Mazes has written Other People's Pets. Her main character is an animal empath. Somebody who could literally feel what animals feel in her body. Pick up Other People's Pets and join Colorado Matters Saturday, February 27th to meet the author. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. A big honor this month for Colorado Springs breakbeat poet and playwright Idris Goodwin. He was selected for a 2021 U.S. Artist Fellowship Award to support his creative work. I spoke with Goodwin last fall after he took over as director of the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. Idris, welcome to the program. Hi. What does growth look like for you in the Colorado Springs art scene? Um, you know, when I lived, I lived in Colorado Springs for about six years. And then I moved away for two years, and then I came back. During that six years that I lived there, you know, I was very surprised and impressed by, you know, the, the amount of different creative um, communities that existed, you know, different galleries, different bands, music rooms, things like that. But, you know, I felt like what there was an opportunity for was more cohesion and more growth, more support, and really for the reason to tell its story. I felt like it was it was not getting out broadly enough. And I remember I brought a really kind of well-known spoken word artist named Andrea Gibson, who lives in Boulder. I brought her to the Springs to do an event with Colorado College. And it was a huge turnout. And she said on the mic, oh, man, I'm living in the wrong city. I mean, no shots against Boulder, and I don't want to put her on glass like that. <laughs> but um, but I think that that, was, that really stuck with me because there's something here, and there's a community here that loves it, and that their voice is not really being heard and their expressions are not um, resonating in the way that I think that they can, you know, internationally. And I think that the Fine Arts Center, because of its history and because of its presence and because of its size, has that potential to kind of be, you know, the, the sort of hub of that, to be the, the platform of the amplifier of all the different arts voices uh, in our region, but also the arts patrons and arts lovers and all of that. So to me, it just, it's going to just take just more support and good amplification, you know, and really like outward facing amplification, telling its story and doing it consistently. And what is that story of the Colorado Springs art scene that you want to tell? 
I mean, that's that is yet to be written. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, I think that there are. I think that there are histories here, right? Like, so the Colorado Space Science Center has a history, and you know, Boca uh, has a history. Modbo has a history. You know, they everyone, you know, individually and collectively, we all have a history that you know I just don't think people know about. You know, I think. You know, I, 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 I'm out in the world quite a bit. And for the six years I lived in Colorado Springs, everyone was like, what's that like? Or they thought it was just focus on the family. You know, they didn't. And when I said arts, you know, that there was a theater scene and a visual arts scene and artists like Floyd Thompson living here, they were, they just were like the bug eyed, you know, because people just think Colorado was like skiing and marijuana, you know what I mean? Or if they do think of art, they think it's just like horse paintings and mountain paintings, which, you know, no shouts against, you know, all my horse painters out there, but <laughs> there's a lot more going on too. So that's what I'm saying is like, individuals like smaller pockets and communities know but i think the region itself is not really even fully aware i mean even denver folks and boulder folks you know don't really know what we got going on in the springs and as you're working to get those stories out how has the pandemic complicated that vision you know this this pandemic i think has forced everyone just to take a pause to brace themselves for impact (laughs) You know, we were in the midst of an exhibition and a new play, and we had to halt both of those. You know, everyone's trying to figure out the best way forward and the, and the most responsible way to do it in terms of health, but also financial. I mean, it's a it's a major financial hit, and you know, a lot of you know some of our our, our fellow museums and, and, and theaters have you know kind of resumed production in some other way but it's come at an extreme cost and we're still trying to navigate and find a comfortable balance between all that. The good news is that we pivoted immediately into the digital space and began creating digital platforms to support artists. And so we created a program, an initiative called the three by three projects, and we funded um, artists from all across Colorado and New Mexico to collaborate virtually, you know, across disciplines. And so there've been some really amazing and, and creative and, and exciting um, collaborations um, that are available on our site. And that has been opening us to a new audience as well, beyond Colorado Springs and, you know, and getting kind of our name out there and our brand out there. Because I think that, you know, the Fine Arts Center, of course, is a destination, but it, it's also a brand. It can also be more than just the location as well. There's nothing in our mission that says anything about an address. You know, we have to continue that work, but also try to do it safely and fiscally responsibly. Yeah, so there's a lot to consider in your role as the director of the Fine Arts Center and the weight of all the changes on the arts community. But then you're also an artist. Have you found it difficult to create during quarantine? No, quite the opposite. (laughs) No, because to me, you know, listen, my, my roots and my background are in hip-hop arts, right? Hip-hop aesthetics, which, you know, requires you to make with whatever tools that you have. So a, a boombox, you know, is now your instrument. You know what I'm saying? A pen and paper is now your instrument, you know? And I've, that's carried me throughout my whole life. So, no, I haven't found it any more or less difficult than before. Because as far as I'm concerned, the job of the writer is to talk about the human condition. And if the human condition is we're in a pandemic and a social uprising, then that's what we got to make the art about. You know, if we're in a, a situation where everything is wonderful and we're all like on gondolas and we're, you know, playing flutes, then I will write uh, and create art about that, you know. 
And like you say, we're in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a national reckoning with racism. How is that showing up in your breakbeat poetry? And maybe you should explain for just us just briefly, what is breakbeat poetry? And really all it is is it just acknowledges the generation of poets who came up in the era of hip-hop and hip-hop's influence on, you know, on letters, you know, so whether that be, you know, and these are people who are not interested necessarily solely being rappers. These are, these are people who also love Yates and, and Gwendolyn Brooks and, you know, Langston Hughes, right? you know, like straight up poets who publish books, right? But, you know, also were influenced by the way that 50 Cent and Eminem put language together. And so Breakbeat Poetry just sort of acknowledges that part of the DNA. And then how is everything that we're dealing with from social turmoil to the pandemic, is that all showing up in the poetry you've been writing during quarantine? So both my poetry and my plays for years have been engaged in conversations about America's failure to reconcile its crimes against uh, people of color, right? Specifically Black people. You know, Black folks in this country have been trying to, you know, express their desire to liberty and the pursuit of happiness from Alex, you know, Alice Childress, right? W.B. Du Bois, his Booker T. Washington. So I'm in that tradition. And so my job as a writer is to tell the story that's in front of me and the story that lives in my DNA. And so that's my job. And so that's what I've been doing and that's what I'll continue to do even when it's over. Well, Idris, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Idris Goodwin is the director for the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center at Colorado College. We spoke in September. And a note, Colorado College is the licensee for KRCC, which is part of CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today, and thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.